guys, and welcome back. My name is Liz, and I'll be your host on this mystifying adventure through lore, legends, and the most horrific thing of all, laundry. Over the past couple of episodes, I've been secretly following a trend of sorts. Do you believe that something is just simply coincidence? For example, you hear about these stories of married couples looking through old family photos, but then they notice something strange. Right there in the picture is their significant other but they never met or knew each other till years later. But how strange is it that they are right there, mere feet from each other? Well, that's the kind of rabbit hole we are falling down right now, and I bet you didn't even notice. You see, during the Chicago World's Fair, you had the Pops Company and their strange alcoholic gnomes, but then I noticed that H.H. Holmes was running his business in the same city at the same time. Well, Also in attendance of the World's Fair was none other than Sarah Winchester, who styled her mystery house in architectural style seen during her visit there. But it doesn't stop with Sarah. You see, an 18-year-old performer by the name of Eric Weiss was also in attendance. In later years, he would go on to visit the home of Sarah Winchester, but under a more famous name. Before I get too ahead of myself, go ahead and grab those baskets, restart the loads if you need to, gather up some snacks and a drink, because this is the legend of Harry Houdini and the afterlife. Harry Houdini is still regarded as one of the greatest illusionists and magicians of all time. He was well known in the 1920s for his debunking of fraudulent spiritualist mediums, in addition to his fantastic escapes and stunts. Modern information about Houdini is skewed in this regard. Many skeptic organizations now claim Houdini as one of their own, but this is not the case. Houdini, unlike these groups, did not begin by attacking fake mediums because he did not believe the supernatural. In fact, he had gone to them in an attempt to contact his deceased mother, but he discovered that the mediums he met were frequently frauds. This is when he decided to expose them, still looking for the truth. Before his death, Houdini stated that he would contact the living from the other side if it was possible. The question now is whether or not he was successful. On March 24th, 1874, Houdini was born in Budapest, Hungary, but grew up as Eric Weiss in the small Wisconsin town of Appleton. Later, his father, Rabbi Mayor Samuel Weiss, relocated the family to Milwaukee, where he established a Jewish congregation. According to legend, Eric was apprenticed to a locksmith and learned to assemble and disassemble locks with his eyes closed. If the story is true, it was a skill that served him well later in life. Many aspects of Houdini's life are still a mystery, which he probably wanted, and he was credited with the famous line about his biography, when the legend is greater than the truth, print the legend. Eric ran away from home when he was 12 years old, hoping to contribute more to his impoverished parents than he could by shining shoes and selling newspapers. Soon after, Rabbi Samuel Weiss left for New York, believing that a religious educator would fare better in a city with a larger Jewish population. Eric moved east to join his father, and the two of them saved enough money to bring Eric's mother and other children to Manhattan. Until he read the memoirs of the famous French magician Robert Houdin, magic was just one of Eric's many interests. Eric worked at a necktie factory on Lower Broadway, but his true ambition was to become a professional magician. He quit his first study job and began performing in New York beer halls and theaters with the help of his friend and fellow factory worker, Jacob Hyman. He adopted the stage name Houdini based on the name of Robert Houdin, and he and Hyman began their new act by performing single night dates wherever they could find a booking. Hyman quit and returned to the necktie factory after becoming disheartened when agents refused to book them for longer runs. 
Eric's younger brother, Theodore Weiss, eagerly took his place. They traveled as far west as Chicago, where the Brothers Houdini did quite well during the 1893 World's Fair, mostly performing on platforms next to snake charmers, fire eaters, and human oddities. See what I mean about the weird synchronicities? Call me crazy, but it seems like a lot of the more well-known folks linked to Victorian-era spiritualism have some connection to the Chicago World's Fair. Let's keep digging, shall we? Friends referred to Houdini as Airy, so the change to Harry was almost unavoidable. But to his parents, he was always Eric. Before dying at the age of 63, Samuel summoned his son to his bedside and made Eric swear that he would always provide for his mother. The oath was superfluous. Cecilia had created the costume for Eric's first magic act and had supported him throughout his career. Eric adored his mother, and their bond grew stronger. Some would say unnaturally so, with the passage of time. I don't see anything wrong with that. Who wouldn't get close to the only family they have left? I say, if you have a good relationship with your mom, good on you guys, because there are a lot of dysfunctional families out there. But then again, these were different times, so... Houdini continued to perform and travel. One of his most praised illusions was metamorphosis, in which an assistant was placed in a lockbox and then switched places with the magician within seconds after a curtain was raised. Theo, nicknamed Dash by Houdini, would make the switch quickly, but Houdini's wife, Bess, was even faster. While performing at Coney Island, Houdini met Wilhelmina Beatrice Rayner. He was 20 years old when he married the tiny brunette singer, who weighed only 94 pounds and was even shorter than Houdini. He came in at a whopping 5 feet 6 inches, while Bess was an even 5 feet tall. Another fun fact, she wore a size 1 shoe. She really was a tiny woman. Anyway, Bess's widowed Catholic mother was furious, but Cecilia, who was understanding, welcomed the newlyweds into her home. Bess soon started working for her husband, while Theo went on the road with another girl, Madame Olga, as his assistant. In 1895, Harry, as we will refer to him from here on out, and Bess performed with the Welsh Brothers Circus, which had its winter headquarters in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Harry sold soap, combs, toothpaste, and other necessities to his fellow performers when he wasn't performing magic. In his spare time, he enjoyed his new hobby of making handcuffs. He discovered how to open them using a hidden duplicate key, a small piece of metal, or bent wire. Every set of the same pattern could be opened with a single key. Harry was confident that he could escape from any type of manacle used by various police departments in the United States with just a few hidden keys and picks. He read everything he could find about locking mechanisms and began collecting various types of cuffs, disassembling them, and studying their mechanisms. And there you have it, the history of lockpicking. I'm joking. People have been picking locks since locks were created. But I guess if you want to be the best at something, you need to study it to the fullest, right? Sorry to burst anyone's perception on magic, but Houdini wasn't good at magic. He was good at picking locks. Sorry. Harry began incorporating new strange stunts into his act, as well as creating incredible escapes that had never been attempted before. He was known for a time as the handcuffed king because of how easily he escaped any restraints. It was a talent that would later make him, well famous. Despite sending half of his weekly $20 salary home to his mother, Harry had saved enough money by the end of the Walsh Brothers tour to purchase stake in the American Gaty Girls, a burlesque show. Harry Newman, his cousin, was the company's advanced man, traveling ahead of the show, booking theaters, and raising publicity. The investment appeared to be prudent. The Houdinis would be working on a regular basis, and Harry could use his new escape skills to secure free newspaper advertising for the show. 
Okay, so after doing a little bit of research, in today's money, Harry would have been bringing home $706 a week. That's some pretty good money. Even after sending his mom half, because the average weekly wages at that time were $12.98 per week for 59 hours worth of work. That's crazy. In November 1895, Harry stunned officers at a police station in Gloucester, Massachusetts by eluding their handcuffs. Similar stories began to appear in newspapers all over the country as the show traveled. Harry was gaining a decent reputation, and he and Bess appeared to be on the right track. But for the time being, it was not meant to be. When the company manager was arrested for embezzling the show's funds, the show was forced to close abruptly in Rhode Island. Disappointed, Harry agreed to tour Nova Scotia with Marco the Magician. Marco had hoped to emulate Herman the Great, but business in Halifax was so bad that he abandoned the show and returned to Connecticut, where he worked as a church organist. That seems like an odd combination. I mean, I know we aren't in the witch hunt era anymore, but I can only imagine that practicing magic is frowned upon within the church. Like, wouldn't that still be seen as possibly satanic and opening doors for, like, demonic possession? I'm not against either of those beliefs because, you know, it's their life, let them be happy, not my business kind of thing. Just genuinely curious, you know? Harry remained in Canada, hoping to strike it rich on his own. He was playing in St. John, New Brunswick's capital, when he accompanied a recent doctor friend on his rounds in a mental institution. Harry watched in awe as a man in a straitjacket locked in a padded cell tried desperately to free himself. Harry became convinced that a straitjacket escape would be an effective one to perform on stage. He borrowed a straitjacket from a friend and then practiced it for weeks before attempting it in front of an audience. Volunteers eagerly buckled Harry in, carried him to a cabinet, and closed the curtains. He'd gained some wiggle room by rigidly crossing his arms as the sleeve straps were tightened. Squeezing every muscle, he pushed one sleeve and then the other over his head. Then he pushed his fingers through the canvas to open the straps. He twisted and turned until he squirmed free. He ripped the restraints off and burst through the curtains to take a bow. To Houdini's wonderment, nobody cheered. Because the audience had not witnessed his struggle, his escape had fallen flat. They assumed he had been released by a hidden accomplice. Harry had not yet discovered the showmanship that would allow him to captivate an audience. That sucks. I mean, I would have been impressed, but then again, I don't hold a lot of skepticism anymore. I have seen too many strange things in my short life to not believe. So that being said, in 1896, the Houdinis had their worst winter season yet, with no new bookings until spring. In August, they were in such financial trouble that Harry wrote to both Harry Keller and Herman the Great, offering his investment services as assistance. Keller replied that he was full at the time, but wished Harry luck in the future. Harry toured with the Midwestern Medicine Show in the fall of 1897. The owner, Dr. Hill, sold bottled cure-alls to crowds gathered in small towns to watch free entertainment provided by members of his troupe. Later in the evening, he offered another show in exchange for a ticket. Dr. Hill learned in one town that a professional spirit medium was attracting large audiences in the area, and Harry offered to stage a seance as part of their performance. On January 8, 1898, Harry made his debut as a spiritualist at the Galena, Kansas Opera House. He pretended to go into a trance while being tied to a chair in his cabinet by an audience committee. After the curtains were drawn, a mandolin began to play softly and bells and tambourines jangled before flying off over the heads of the audience. Harry was still bound when the curtains opened. The curtains closed once more and he was liberated from his bonds by the spirits. Harry then walked front and center, closed his eyes, and relayed messages from the dead. 
Okay, now that would either scare the crap out of me or I'd be completely mesmerized by this man's talent. I mean, he was very talented, but talking with the dead, that would have blown me away or scared the crap out of me. I can't decide. Harry had quickly prepared for this, the most convincing part of his act by listening to local gossip, reading back issues of the Galena newspaper, and copying names and dates from tombstones in nearby cemeteries. Several people fled the theater when Harry pretended to contact the spirits of a lame man whose throat had been cut and spelled out the victim's name. I'm not condoning lying to people for profit, but this man was a genius. Seriously, who would have thought, hey, he just read that in the newspaper, or I saw you at the cemetery taking notes. Uh, nobody. Because it wasn't like someone was looking to catch him in the act of fooling these people, but seriously, don't do that now. That's a bit fucked up. After the medicine show tour ended, Harry struggled to book his magic and escape act. He and Bess worked as mediums for a while before returning to the Welsh Brothers Circus for another season. At the age of 24, Harry was still at the bottom of the entertainment industry. He promised his wife that he would try magic for one more year, and then if he wasn't a hit, he would give up and find another more lucrative line of work. After his performance in St. Paul, Minnesota in early 1899, Harry was approached by a short, plump German man. Could Harry free himself from other manacles or just those used in the show, the man wondered. Harry boasted that a restraint capable of holding him had yet to be invented. The man returned the next evening with his own handcuffs, locked them around Harry's wrist, and pocketed the key. The man introduced himself as Martin Beck, the acclaimed booker for the Orpheum Vaudeville circuit after the brash young magician easily escaped from the manacles. He offered Harry a trial in Omaha in exchange for a new act featuring dramatic escapes. See, that could have gone one of two ways, but it was our extremely talented lockpicking friend's lucky day because if he didn't escape from those shackles, his career would have been toast, and he would have been off-selling snake oils like Dr. Hill or still pretending to conjure spirits of your loved ones. But I'm glad it went well for him because... Soon after, with Beck's help, Harry left the small time behind and embarked on his journey to become an American and then global sensation. The escape artist slipped out of five pairs of police shackles and a set of regulation leg irons in Omaha, where he played for a week and received $60, the most money he had ever earned at one time. His salary had risen to $90 by the time he arrived in California. Let's adjust that to today's inflation rate, shall we? So if Harry was making $90 per week, that would be equivalent to $2,935.46 today. I'd say that he was making quite the killing. In San Francisco, Harry was stripped naked and examined by a police surgeon in the office of the San Francisco Detective Force. He then managed to free himself from 10 pairs of handcuffs, a wide leather belt used to restrain dangerous prisoners, and a standard trade jacket. The escapes took place behind the closed doors of a closet, and the veteran detectives had no idea how it was done. The lengthy newspaper account never mentioned Harry's prior visit to the detectives bureau to inspect the restraints, nor did it mention the kiss he exchanged with Bess before being placed in the closet. I'd like to know what kind of kiss that was, and if it were the kind that made others uncomfortable or blush, then I'm quite sure they didn't check to see if Bess was hiding a key behind those pearly whites before planting one on her hubby. I'll bet on that one, and I'm not the betting kind. They had no way of knowing about the clever method the Houdinis had devised, where Bess slipped a key to her husband with her tongue while they were kissing. Friends, I read my research and write my little monologues at the same time, so I find this information out as I read. Unlike Harry, who goes to graveyards and researches before doing his acts, you know, I should probably start doing that. I have ADD. If I didn't write this stuff down, we would be five serial killers and a cryptid deep into a story that has nothing to do with what I started with. Okay. 
When Harry's salary increased to 150 per week, he placed large advertisements in trade papers to ensure that the theatrical world was aware of his achievements. Martin Beck used the advertisements as well as lengthy newspaper stories about his feats and box office reports from the Orpheum tour to sell Harry as a headliner to the Keith Theater Circuit in the East. Let's do the math again. 150 a week with today's inflation rate would end up being $5,364. Like, what do you do with that kind of cash in that day? I mean, I live a simple life and could live on one week's worth of his pay for the whole month and still have some leftover. So, Harry and Bess, eager to travel abroad, set sail for England without a reservation. Before he received his first British contract, he had to persuade a skeptical theater manager that he could escape from Scotland Yard handcuffs. He debuted to critical acclaim at the Alhambra Theater in London in July 1900, and then traveled to the continent where he set new box office records in Dresden and Berlin. The demand for handcuff acts in vaudeville grew so strong that he brought his brother Theo from New York and sent him on tour as Hardeen. Within a year, Harry had become Europe's most popular attraction. Harry never turned down a publicity opportunity. When Warner Graf, a German police officer, published a mocking article in July of 1901 accusing Harry of lying when he claimed he could escape from any type of police restraint, Harry sued Graf for slander. He won the case after fighting it through two German appeals courts. Harry marked the occasion by releasing a new advertising lithograph of himself in a tuxedo and manacles before the highest German tribunal. The lithograph was titled, Apologize in the Name of King Wilhelm II, Kaiser of Germany, and it included a few words about Graf's forced apology and the fact that he had to pay all of the magician's court costs. Talk about picking fights. I mean, the officer wasn't wrong, but he wasn't right either. Harry could escape from any restraint, but what people didn't know, and something we have already learned, is that he had help of skeleton keys and lock-picking tools but good on him for fighting to keep his career from being ruined. Harry loved attention, but he was never the type to ignore an insult. Ingoberto Clapini, a circuit's escape artist, advertised in 1902 that he had defeated the American in a handcuff competition. He most likely assumed that Harry would never see the advertisement, but he not only saw it, he traveled from Holland to Dortmund, Germany to confront his detractor. He took a seat in the stands while disguised, he sat through the show until Clapini announced to the audience that he had defeated Harry in an escape contest. At that point, Harry leapt into the circus ring, ripped off his disguise, and challenged a startled performer with a handful of banknotes. He'd given Clapini 5,000 marks if he could get out of a pair of Harry's handcuffs, and another 5,000 if Harry couldn't get out of his. I can see where this is going. Clapini agreed to let Harry put him in French letter cuffs the next night after being prodded by the circus's business manager. The business manager was shown the manacles before the show, and Harry demonstrated how the five cylinders could be turned to spell out clefs, the French word for keys, and open the handcuffs. Clapini confidently entered his cabinet, but the structure was moved to the side of the ring after 30 minutes so that the rest of the show could continue. Workers lifted the cabinet again after the program ended. Clapini dashed out and across the ring to the manager's office still cuffed. The manager ordered Clepini to give up at about 1 a.m. when the manager told Clepini to stop trying. Harry spun the cylinders until the letters fraud fell into place. The cuff slid open. Before the manacles were placed on his opponent's wrist, he had changed the combination. Remember, it was supposed to be unlocked with another set of letters. Again, another move to keep Harry solidified in his spot as the greatest escape artist of his time. Seems like a dick move, but then again, that's how they made their living. You want to keep making money and keep your head above water? 
you have to deal some low blows to keep it there. If the police didn't confront Harry in a city where he performed, Harry would confront them. During a performance in Moscow in May of 1903, he dared the Russian secret police chief to imprison him on one of the escape-proof jails on wheels designed to transport state enemies to Siberia. Harry had come across one of these strange horse-drawn vans on the street and examined it while the horses drank from a trough. Escape was impossible from the front, sides, bottom, and top, but the back entrance door was secured with a single padlock, located just below a barred window through which a slender arm could pass. Harry was stripped, searched, chained hand and foot, and then locked in the wagon. The police, who were watching from the far side of the courtyard, were turned away from the entrance door. Within 20 minutes, Harry had escaped. The outraged police refused to confirm his escape, but word spread quickly, and soon handsome lithographs depicting the American magician outwitting the Russian secret police appeared. As many of us know, you don't fuck with the Russians. They may have given us vodka, but that's about as nice as they get. But seriously they had to be pretty pissed to be humiliated like that. Sounds like Harry was letting his ego get to his head and he got a little too big for his britches, if you know what I mean. When Harry returned to America, he found himself in Hyde's demand. His exploits in Europe had been widely publicized in the United States and he was soon selling out theaters across the country. Four months after his return, he staged his most daring prison escape to date. In March 1906, officials locked the naked magician in a cell on Murderer's Row in Washington, D.C. that had previously housed Charles Guiteau, President James Garfield's assassin. After locking Harry's clothes in another cell, the officers returned to the warden's office. Working quickly, Harry freed himself before opening all of the doors and transferring the prisoners from one cell to another. He encountered no oppositions, and the prisoners were thoroughly entertained, despite their surprise at the sudden appearance of a naked man. Harry locked the cells, dressed, and knocked on the warden's door after changing the cells of all the men on the entire cell block. The entire feat was completed in less than 27 minutes. I guess one way to not get killed whilst in a maximum security prison and dealing with actual murderers is to entertain them. I'll keep that in mind if I ever find myself in that situation, or for any of our listeners that find themselves in that situation. I really hope none of us do, but you never know. That winter, Harry jumped from the Bell Island Bridge in Detroit and escaped from two pairs of handcuffs while submerged beneath the icy water surface. According to legend, the river was frozen over at the time and Harry jumped into it through a hole that had been cut into the ice. According to the story, he nearly drowned before finding the opening again and being able to be pulled out. However, despite the fact that it was cold that day, the river was not actually frozen. Regardless, this exploit made front page news, as did his subsequent bridge jumps. In January 1908, Harry performed the first of the escapes for which he would become famous, from a padlocked water can, at the Columbia Theater in St. Louis. While a committee inspected a large galvanized container similar to the milk can supplied by dairies to farmers, he went off stage to put on his bathing suit. The volunteers watched as the container was filled with water by the assistants. While this was going on, Harry was building the drama by grimly reminding the audience that without life-sustaining air, a man could only live for a short time. He advised them to begin holding their breath as soon as his head vanished into the tank. He stepped into the can with his feet first and quickly vanished into the water. Within 30 seconds, the majority of the audience was gasping for air. But Harry had not appeared. 
He was out of sight for almost two minutes. This feat of endurance earned him a standing ovation, but the most thrilling part of the performance was yet to come. Unless you actually train for something like that, you can't hold your breath for long, so I'm sure this scared audiences all over. Nowadays, we have free divers and endurance performers that can hold their breath for far longer than Harry's two minutes, but that's still an amazing feat during that time. Harry's wrists were handcuffed this time before he went back into the water-filled can. More water was poured into the can until it was overflowed onto the stage. His assistants quickly slid the top onto the can and secured it with six padlocks. Escape appeared to be impossible. Time began to tick away as a curtain was drawn around the can. Audience members who had gulped in another large breath of air as Harry vanished into the can now coughed loudly. The clock ticked. 30 seconds. 60 seconds. 90 seconds. Franz Kugel, Harry's chief assistant, emerged from backstage with an axe in hand, ready to break the locks and save the magician. He leaned against the curtain, listening intently, but there was no sound. Two minutes went by, then three. Kugel drew an axe. The tense atmosphere in the theater was almost unbearable. Something terrible must have happened. Audience members began shouting to the assistants on the stage, urging them to break open the locks and to free Harry. Kugel finally leaned forward with the axe and began to pull back the curtain around the milk can. Harry, dripping wet but smiling, ripped the curtain aside and stepped out into full view as he did. The rafters of the theater shook as he took his bow due to the audience applause. In Germany, he was preparing for his next spectacular feat. In November of 1909, while performing at the Hansa Theater in Hamburg, he purchased a voice and biplane after witnessing a short flight by a local aviator. Within a month, the showman was able to fly the plane on his own. He had been fascinated by the development of aviation since the Wright brothers flew at Kitty Hawk and dreamed of taking flight. He knew no one had ever flown over Australia, and he was determined to be the first. The crated biplane was stored in the hold of a ship, and Harry sailed for Australia in January 1910. Fun fact, we actually have one listener that resides in Australia. They make some damn good beer, and I know they are probably going to hate me for saying this, but you guys also made Bluey. Although at least one of those things didn't exist when Harry decided to visit the land down under, I can definitely see why he would want to visit. It's gorgeous, and they get to go surfing on Christmas. Yeah, I might be a little jealous. Harry was performing at Melbourne's new opera house and, as usual, planned a spectacular stunt to promote the show. More than 20,000 people lined the Queen's Bridge and the banks of the Yarra River on February 18th to witness the manacled escapologist plunge into the murky waters below. Less than a month later at Digger's Rest, a field just outside of town, Harry flew the first plane on the continent in front of a much smaller crowd. Harry went to the field after his show, eager to take advantage of some good flying weather, and slept in the tent that served as a hangar for his biplane. His plane was wheeled out on the wooden planks that served as a takeoff area at 5 a.m. on March 16th. He put on a cap and goggles before climbing behind the wheel. The propeller was turned on, the mooring line released, and the engine began to roar. The plane shot forward and up, gracefully soaring into the morning sky. He circled the field before returning to the runway. The assembled audience applauded and laughed as the plane touched down. Going down in history as the first sustained flight in Australian history, Harry had concluded the flight with a perfect landing. The following year, while performing in England, Harry worked on a new device that would replace the padlocked water can and lead to even more acclaim. When it was finished, the new Chinese water torture cell was crated and stored until he needed another blockbuster attraction to supplement his act. 
I'm starting to think this man wasn't afraid of anything, especially things that might eventually kill him. Maybe he just wasn't afraid of dying because his ego had become so big. I will warn you though, if you have a weak stomach, you might want to skip over this next part. When he returned to the United States in the fall of 1911, he had been tied to a plank by three sea captains. He also escaped from a deep sea diving suit despite the fact that the headpiece was bolted to the shoulders. Then he accepted his most unusual challenge yet. A sea monster that resembled a cross between a whale and a squid was discovered on a beach near Boston, and the lieutenant governor of Massachusetts challenged Harry to play Jonah. The manacled magician was dragged through a slit in the embalmed carcass on a theater stage. Assistants sewed the opening shut with a metal chain, wrapped it around the carcass, and padlocked it. Working behind a curtain, Harry was able to free himself in 15 minutes. He later stated that he would never try anything like it again because the fumes from the embalming fluid used by taxidermists inside the creature nearly killed him. I don't care how much someone is going to pay me, I will not be climbing inside a dead animal. That's just gross. I can bet that he was the only magician to do that trick. Just you. For those of you with a weak stomach, you can unplug your ears now. During the summer of 1912, Harry kept his name in the papers and huge crowds to the theaters where he performed by escaping from heavy wooden crates that had been nailed and boarded shut and then dropped in the river. He included the Chinese water torture cell in his act during his fall tour with the Circus Bush in Germany after performers in America, Europe, and Australia had copied his water can escape. Prior to the show, a committee of volunteers was formed to inspect the metal-lined mahogany tank as well as the cage that was to be lowered into the water-filled chamber. They examined the heavy enclosures on its ankles and the massive frame that was fitted over them after they snapped the cuffs on its wrist. Then Harry was hauled up, turned upside down, and lowered into the water. Assistants secured the tank's top and pushed a canopy over it to cover it. Until the drapes around the tank were closed, Harry was visible through the plate glass on the front of the tank. Two assistants stood by with axes, ready to shatter the glass in the event of an emergency. After several minutes of suspense, Harry parted the curtains to thunderous applause. Talk about anxiety. Just thinking about being upside down in a tank of water and being locked down? No thank you. So many things could go wrong. Like, what if you didn't get to take a big enough breath before being lowered? What if you needed to sneeze or cough? Nope too much risk. Harry returned to the United States in the following summer in order to spend time with his mother. Cecilia was frail and weak, and her health was failing at the age of 72. Harry took a single month-long engagement at New York City's Hammerstein's Roof Garden in order to be close to her. The last time he saw her was at his farewell party when he returned to Europe. On July 17th, he was in Copenhagen being interviewed by several newspaper men when a cable arrived for him. Harry ripped open the envelope to discover that his beloved mother had passed away. He collapsed unconscious on the floor. He then broke his contract in Copenhagen, canceled the rest of his European engagements, and returned to New York for the funeral. It was the worst pain the great magician had ever known. His European tour did not resume until September. He frequently stated that his mother's death was a shock from which I do not think recover is possible. Great war broke out in 1914. Harry was working in the United States. Because European theaters were closed to him for the duration, he perfected a new publicity stunt to draw crowds to American theaters. A straitjacket escape performed while dangling high in the air, upside down, and from the top of a building. More than 20,000 people gathered in Providence to watch him wiggle free from his shackles. Another 50,000 people gathered in Baltimore, and twice as many in the nation's capital. Harry completed the act by allowing the straitjacket to fall a dozen stories to the street below. 
Then, while still suspended in midair, he extended his arms and took a bow. In 1917, Harry registered for the draft. He probably knew he wouldn't be inducted at the age of 43, but he took advantage of the opportunity by performing at training camps, in Red Cross shows, and staging in straitjacket escape high above Broadway while members of the Society of American Magicians and their wives sold war bonds in the streets. Harry had recently been elected president of the prestigious society and new affiliates were being formed all over the country under his leadership. Even during the darkest of times, the death of his mother, the war, he was doing what he did best to make people happy. I've got to give him some brownie points for that. On January 7th, 1918, Harry debuted the largest delusion ever performed at the New York Hippodrome or anywhere for that matter. He called it the Vanishing Elephant, and for this trick, he hired Jenny, a 10,000-pound pachyderm who was placed inside a wooden box the size of a small garage. Harry fired a pistol once she was inside. His assistants removed a circular section at the back of the box, allowing the audience to see through the stage curtains at the back, showing the elephant had vanished. With this baffling mystery, Variety editor Sim Silverman wrote, Houdini puts the title of escape artist behind him and becomes the master magician. There was no doubt about it. Houdini had arrived. But Houdini was a troubled man as well as a famous one. He was still depressed over his mother's death and became obsessed with it. He was seen many times after she died at the cemetery where she was buried, laying face down on her grave and having long conversations with her. He felt compelled to communicate with her, so he turned to spiritualism. I mean, it's really not that uncommon to see loved ones going to their deceased family member's grave and speaking with them. I see it as a way to keep their memory alive and just have that sense of connection. But just like Harry Houdini and Sarah Winchester, some take it to the next level. Harry soon discovered that the mediums he visited were trying to pass off cheap magic tricks as the work of the spirits after conducting fake seances during a low point in his career. He knew he could imitate their methods on stage, and it wasn't long before his efforts to contact his mother were overshadowed by his desire to expose the fraudsters. He quickly became bitter and convinced himself that all of the mediums were frauds. He began investigating their methods and claims and eventually became his own crusader against them. Meanwhile, his career was thriving. The magician signed a contract with B.F. Rolf before leaving the Hippodrome. Rolf's Octagon films would star Houdini in The Master Mystery, a movie serial. Harry would play Quentin Locke, an undercover Justice Department agent who used his escape artist skills to foil the movie villain's plans. Harry's character was buried alive in a gravel pit, tied in the bottom of an elevator shaft as the car was lowered to crush him, suspended upside down over boiling acid, and even strapped into an electric chair in various scenes. He always managed to survive, though. While filming one of the early scenes, Harry broke three bones in his left wrist, but production continued. When he returned to the Hippodrome in August, he had to wear a leather wrist support. Despite this, he pulled off all of his escapes and illusions flawlessly. In the spring of 1919, Harry made his first Hollywood feature film, The Grim Game, for Paramount Pictures. When he fell during a jail escape scene, he fractured his left wrist again. Soon after, his second film, Terror Island, was released and he established the Houdini Picture Corporation, confident that he would write, produce, and star in films. The Man from Beyond and Haldane of the Secret Service followed in the footsteps of his previous films, with Houdini starring as a hero who escaped his adversaries' diabolical traps and tortures. The films were a modest success, but not enough to keep Harry away from his true calling. Creator of Sherlock Holmes and the spiritualist spokesperson. Despite their opposing views on the supernatural, they became good friends. Harry was overjoyed to discover that there was at least one intelligent person who believed in spiritualism, and he found him in his friend Conan Doyle. 
The author was convinced of the movement's importance to the world and had given up most of his lucrative writing career to travel the world lecturing about spiritualism. He also discovered that Harry's knowledge of the spirit world was as extensive as his own, although their attitudes differed. Through Conan Doyle, he met a number of British mediums but found nothing but deception at the seances. Harry's previous feelings about fraudulent mediums began to resurface and he felt that someone needed to counteract the propaganda spread by credulous believers after the war. Harry began making notes for a book after after feeling ashamed of his disguise as a medium during his medicine show days. Sir Arthur arrived in New York in 1922 as part of a nationwide lecture tour and had the opportunity to see The Man from Beyond as Harry's guest. Doyle praised the film as one of the really great contributions to the screen, citing scenes in which Harry's character saved a young woman just before she plunged to her death over Niagara Falls. Unfortunately, the two men's friendship was on the verge of disintegrating. The schism between them began after Lady Jean's failed attempt to contact Harry's mother in an Atlantic City hotel room, as described earlier in the book. Soon after, Doyle sided with spiritualists like J. Hewitt McKenzie, who made public claims that Harry escaped from his stage traps through supernatural means. In retaliation, Harry launched a full-fledged assault on psychic fraud. During personal appearances to promote his film, The Man from Beyond, he projected slides of famous mediums and condemned the deceptions they perpetrated during their seances. In newspaper columns across the country, he answered questions about the methods of false mediums. Though he continued to perform in vaudeville, Harry spent the majority of his off-stage time tracking down and exposing what he called vultures who preyed on the bereaved. He frequently attended seances while disguised with a false beard, mustache, and other pieces of disguise, allowing him to observe the proceedings without being detected. When he gathered enough evidence to make an accusation, he would leap up, rip off his disguise, and exclaim, I am Houdini, and you are a fraud. Again, yeah, it's a shitty thing to do. Preying on people's grief and belief, but then again, Houdini wasn't exactly honest about how he did his tricks either. Everyone was just out there trying to make a living, you know? His actions were widely publicized, but he wasn't doing it for the attention. More than anything, Houdini desired to locate a genuine medium a genuine psychic who could connect him with his mother. In addition to visiting mediums and attending seances, Houdini began to include spiritualistic manifestations in his stage shows, demonstrating how spirit forms and ectoplasm could be easily created by a skilled magician. Houdini was not the first to do this, but his performances were unquestionably the most dramatic. I am willing to be convinced, said Houdini publicly. My mind is open, but the proof must be such that there is no doubt that what is claimed to be done is only possible through or by supernatural power. To demonstrate his open mind, the magician made a pact with a number of his friends, including Dunninger, that if he died, he would make contact from the other side if all possible. He devised a secret code with the one person he trusted the most, his wife Bess. So that if a message from the beyond arrived, she could tell it was truly from Houdini. Some have speculated that Houdini devised the death pact because he was already anticipating his own death, which was only three years away. But this is not the case. He was only trying to show that he believed in the possibility of the other side. I've had my fair share of family members and friends pass away. A lot of them believe there was more to the afterlife than just pitch black nothingness. I have also had my fair share of signs that they are still watching over me from other side. Does everyone need to believe this? Absolutely not. Believe in whatever makes you comfortable or makes you happy. May it be that we go to heaven or hell, that we are reincarnated, or that we stick around as spirits. 
While Houdini was willing to believe in the unexplainable, he was not willing to put up with those he considered to be fools and frauds. He took a break from his vaudeville performances in 1923 to travel across the country on a lecture crusade against fraudulent mediums. The following year, his book, A Magician Among the Spirits, would be released. Later that year, in 1923, Houdini joined a panel assembled by Scientific American magazine that offered a reward to any medium who could prove their physical abilities were genuine. While Houdini was still on the road with his lecture tour, medium Nino Pecoraro, who would later be publicly exposed by Dunninger, applied for the Scientific American prize money. A telegram from Orson Munn, the publisher, brought the magician from Little Rock, Arkansas to New York for a test seance. Houdini literally exploded when fellow committee members planned to tie the Italian medium with a single long rope. He told them that even inexperienced escapologists could free their hands when trussed up in this manner. Houdini slashed the rope into short lengths and tied himself to the medium. The medium then produced no manifestations. Houdini resumed his lecture tour only to learn three months later that the investigation panel had reached a deadlock over a medium named Mina Crandon, who went by the stage name Marjorie. They stated that they believed Crandon was genuine and that they were willing to give her the 2500 reward. J. Malcolm Byrd, an associate editor at Scientific American, was a fan of Crandon's and eager to lend her the magazine support. He let the press know about the panel's favorable findings. One headline read, Boston medium baffles experts. Houdini's the magician stumped, exclaimed another. Houdini, who had not even been present during Crandon's investigation, was astounded that the magazine would even consider approving a medium he had never seen. Orson Munn, the publisher, summoned him for a consultation and publicly stated to Scientific American that if he failed to expose Marjorie as a fraud, he would forfeit a thousand of his own money. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, an avid supporter of the medium, was outraged when it was revealed that Houdini would now be involved in Marjorie's investigations. He called it a capital error to include a spiritualist opponent in the investigation. The commission is, in my opinion, a farce, he wrote. Mina Crandon, on the other hand, seemed to relish the opportunity to pit herself against Houdini. The prize money meant nothing to his wealthy woman, but the chance to win the approval of such a prestigious committee at the expense of the mighty Houdini proved too strong to resist. Houdini took the train to Boston with Orson Munn, and on the way, he reviewed the findings of his colleagues on the investigation panel. To his mind, the investigation had been handled poorly from the start. Marjorie did not perform as well as other mediums under the same test conditions. She was permitted to conduct her test seances at home in Boston, which opened the door to the possibility of fraud. During the proceedings, the majority of the committee members had taken advantage of the Crandon's generous hospitality, staying in their home, eating their food, and enjoying their company. Houdini believed that this had severely harmed their objectivity, and it was later revealed that accepting food and a bed from the Crandons was the least of their problems. One investigator had borrowed money from Marjorie's husband, while another was hoping to gain his support for a research foundation. Worse, the distinguished panel was well aware of Marjorie's physical appeal. Years later, at least one committee member would recount his amorous encounters with the famous medium. Mina Crandon certainly sparked controversy in the early 1920s, but she was a rather unlikely medium. Sounds to me like they were trying really hard to have some kind of leverage over the committee. It just sounds super fishy to me. Handing out money, wanting support for research, and then using your beauty to flirt with the members of the committee? Hmm, I don't know. Mina Stinson, the daughter of a farmer, was born in Ontario in 1888. She moved to Boston at the age of 16 to play the piano, coronet, 
and cello and local bands and orchestras. She married Earl P. Rand, a grocer, after working as a secretary, actress, and ambulance driver. They had a son. They were happily married until a medical procedure introduced her to Lee Roy Goddard Crandon, a prominent surgeon and former Harvard Medical School instructor. In 1918, she divorced Rand and married Crandon a few months later. Mina had no psychic experiences as a child and had no interest in the spirit world until her husband became interested in it in the early 1920s. Dr. Crandon invited a group of friends to his home for a home circle meeting one evening in May 1923. The group gathered around a small table, which quickly began to tilt in response to the sitter's questions. Crandon suggested that they take their hands off the table one at a time to determine who was responsible for the paranormal activity. They took their hands away one by one, but the table only stopped rocking when the last one of the sitters lifted her hands. Dr. Crandon had discovered the truth. The medium was his own wife. So we're going to go a little off track here and learn a bit more about Mina, aka Marjorie, but it will all make sense in the end. Here we go. Mina thought being a medium was a silly idea at first. The Cranons held seances after seances at their home throughout the summer in 1923. Mina seemed to learn a new skill every time. Dr. Cranon appeared to only need to read about a new spirit manifestation before his wife could replicate it. Within a month of her first official seance, Dr. Cranon announced a plan to hypnotize his wife in order to make contact with the psychic control who served as her spirit guide. Mina initially resisted the idea, claiming that she didn't want to miss any of the fun while she was hypnotized. Eventually, she yielded to her husband's wishes and a male voice could be heard in the Crandon home circle. It's a demon. Mina fucked around and found out in the worst possible way she is now possessed. I'm kidding. The voice turned out to be Mina's brother, Walter Stinson, who was killed in a railroad accident in 1911. Walter's spirit became a regular presence in the Crandon seance room after that. He demonstrated a strong personality and quick wit and a penchant for using coarse language. Many visitors to the seance room were convinced of what they heard simply because they couldn't imagine such coarse and vulgar language coming from the mouth of the lovely doctor's wife. Several observers noted that Walter's voice did not appear to come from Mina. The sound seemed to come from somewhere else in the room and would continue even when Mina was in a trance or had a mouthful of water. The effect was so remarkable that one skeptic, looking for a plausible explanation for what he had witnessed, wondered if Mina could speak through her ears. Walter rose to prominence as Mina's spirit guide, and he and his sister gained worldwide acclaim. But... Mina didn't need Walter's assistance to become a popular medium, particularly among male sitters. Mina resembled nothing so much as a light-hearted flapper as opposed to old and ungainingly mediums like Helena Blavatsky or Eusebia Palladino. Even Houdini admitted she was a very attractive woman, and one psychic researcher warned his colleagues to not fall in love with the medium. Her sitters were usually greeted in nothing more than a flimsy dressing gown, bedroom slippers, and silk stockings. This garb, which left almost nothing to the imagination, was intended to rule out the possibility of trickery or concealment, but it also distracted male visitors. Mina's slim figure, fashionably bobbed hair, light blue eyes made her too attractive for her own good. According to one admirer, to add to the intrigue, it was rumored that she frequently held sessions while naked and that she was especially skilled at manifesting ectoplasm from her downstairs lady bits. I don't even know what to say on that one. One, that sounds gross. Two, she might need to be checked out by a doctor, particularly one she isn't married to. He might be a little biased. 
Dr. Cranon thought his lovely wife was a remarkable psychic instrument, so he took her abroad to garner positive feedback from European experts. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was one of these, describing her as a very powerful medium whose validity of her gifts was beyond all doubt. Malcolm Byrd of Scientific America agreed with Doyle and published a series of articles extolling her virtues. Byrd gave her the name Marjorie in order to protect the Cranon's privacy. Her fame grew steadily under this name. Conan Doyle had unintentionally started the most contentious period of Marjorie's career by bringing her to the attention of Scientific American. The panel was deadlocked over whether or not genuine phenomena were occurring in Marjorie's presence, thanks to Bird's urging. Nobody would commit to anything without Houdini's approval, which is why Orson Munn reintroduced him into the investigation. However, this did not please everyone. J. Malcolm Bird, who had been assigned to observe, organize, and record the investigations with Marjorie, unbelievably, given his opinions about Marjorie to begin with, Bird wanted Houdini removed from the panel and thus began the investigation without him. Houdini, on the other hand, traveled to Boston, eager to see the medium for himself, and rightfully so, because everyone seems to have been blinded by her, let's call them parlor tricks. Houdini arrived at the Crandon home on July 23rd, leaving his disguises and tricks behind. He wanted to see her perform under the same conditions that his colleagues had. Meanwhile, the medium relished the prospect of converting the notorious debunker to her cause. Some observers saw the seance as a litmus test for Marjorie's authenticity, as well as spiritualism itself. Houdini stood there and watched as a spirit bell rang, a voice in the darkness called out to him, and a megaphone crashed to the floor at his feet. If these manifestations moved him, he didn't show it. When the lights were turned back on, Houdini thanked his host and exited. However, on the way back to the hotel, he finally expressed his feelings. I've got her, he declared. All fraud. Houdini was impressed by what he saw at the Crandon home, and especially by Marjorie, though not by her supernatural powers, he quickly assured Orson Munn. That night, at his hotel, he explained how and why his conclusions about Marjorie differed from those of some panel members. The ringing of a spirit bell box, a small wooden clapper box that sounded an electric bell when pressed on the top, had perplexed the panel. Despite the fact that sitters on either side of her held Marjorie's hand and her feet were in contact with theirs. The bell box rang frequently during the seance, which she attributed to Walter. The bell box was usually placed on the floor between Marjorie's legs, but Houdini insisted on having it placed at his own feet. Regardless, the bell rang several times. I had rolled my right trouser leg up above my knee. Houdini explained. I'd wrapped a silk rubber bandage around the leg, just below the knee, all day. The part of Miss Crandon's leg below the bandage had become swollen and painfully tender by night, giving me a much keener sense of feeling and making it easier to notice the slightest sliding of her ankle or flexing of her muscles. I could feel her ankle sliding slowly and spasmodically against mine as she gained space to lift her foot off the floor and touch the top of the box. In other words, the ringing of the bell was caused by Marjorie's foot, not a spirit. Another of the evening's mysteries had involved a megaphone that had levitated in the air above the sitter's head, according to Walter's spectral voice. Houdini told Walter where to throw the object, and Walter instructed him to throw it in his direction. The megaphone fell to the floor in front of him a few moments later. Houdini had an explanation as well. Earlier in the evening, when one of Marjorie's hands was free, she grabbed the megaphone and wore it like a dunce cap. No one could have seen her do this in the total darkness of the seance room. She later swung her head forward and made the megaphone fly across the room. This is the slickest ruse I have ever seen, 
said Houdini. This is the dumbest attempt at being a psychic or medium that I have ever heard. Helen Duncan, another spiritualist slash medium from across the pond, performed better tricks than this. We may touch on her later. This is just laughable at this point. Houdini refused to speak publicly about Marjorie after his first seance. He did not express his feelings about what had happened that night. Instead, he requested that more stringent tests be carried out. It was rumored that Marjorie had outwitted Houdini and that perhaps her abilities were genuine after all. Houdini ignored all of this and began planning additional seances. Houdini devised a special fraud preventer cabinet, a crate with a slanted top, and openings on the top and sides for the medium's head and arms to ensure proper control of future sittings. Marjorie's movements and opportunities for deception would be severely restricted once she was inside. Marjorie reluctantly agreed to the seance from within the cabinet, but not before Houdini and Dr. Crannon exchanged such harsh words that they nearly got into physical altercation. Dr. Crannon had previously boasted to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle that he would crucify any investigators who questioned his wife. Needless to say, Houdini was near the top of his list of possible victims. The first cabinet meeting did not go well. Walter appeared shortly after Marjorie entered her trance, and the committee requested that the spirit ring the bell box which had been placed in the cabinet with her. Almost immediately, Walter exclaimed that Houdini had altered the bell so that it no longer rang. A closer look at the bell revealed that a piece of rubber had been wedged against the clapper, preventing it from ringing. Dr. Crandon was outraged and accused Houdini of attempting to sabotage the proceedings, which Houdini repeatedly denied. Again, just laughable. Sounds like she was trying to get rid of Harry and sabotaging her own seances in order to make everyone else want to get rid of him too. I'd say she saw him as a threat. Maybe she was worried that her husband would leave her if she proved to be a fake. Houdini was accused of cheating again a short time later. A collapsible carpenter's ruler was discovered at Marjorie's feet, which could have been used to manipulate the bell box and other apparatus from within the cabinet. Houdini, you goddamn bastard, get the hell out of here and never come back, Walter yelled into the seance room. The folding ruler, according to Houdini, was placed in the box to make him look bad. He swore he didn't put it in there and the Crandon said the same thing. Houdini blamed them for the ruler and they blamed him. He despised anyone who would take their word, particularly Walter, the spirit guide, over his. Many people, including some members of the panel, believed Houdini was the one caught cheating this time. He was widely discredited as a result, prompting some to question the credibility of some of his previous investigations. In any case, Scientific American eventually declined to award the prize to Marjorie, owning in large part to Houdini's fame. The combative magician had fought, sometimes violently, with every member of the committee. J. Malcolm Berg, who Houdini suspected of colluding with the Grandins, resigned as panel secretary. He was furious with Houdini and insisted that he should have been disqualified from the start. Houdini infuriated Bird, the Crandons, and their supporters even more when he published Houdini Exposes the Tricks Used by the Boston medium Marjorie. He was adamant that Marjorie was doing nothing more than playing clever tricks. My decision is that everything that occurred at the seances that I attended was a deliberate and conscious fraud, he wrote in his final verdict on the medium. Walter added his final words about Houdini from the other side. He concluded by predicting that Houdini would die within a year. Houdini managed to defy the prophecy, but only narrowly. He died in 1926, and Marjorie had only positive things to say about the magician in an interview with the press, praising him for his viral personality and great determination. 
Marjorie escaped the debacle relatively unscathed, despite Houdini's exposures. She continued her seances, and by the end of 1924, she was producing even more powerful manifestations, such as spirit arms that rang the bell box and caused objects to fly around the seance room. Houdini, like Marjorie, quickly recovered from the accusations leveled against him following the Scientific American investigations. That fall, he embarked on another nationwide lecture tour, this time blasting the fraudulent mediums he was attempting to put out of business. In the fall of 1925, he debuted a new full evening show in which he played three roles, magician, escapologist, and medium debunker. Houdini offered 10,000 in each city along his route to anyone who would demonstrate a spiritualistic manifestation that he could not duplicate. The show sold out across the country, and Houdini was forced to extend his tour dates due to the high demand for tickets. In the spring of 1926, he returned to New York with the intention of relaxing and creating new mysteries for his fall session. Instead of relaxing, he was met with a new psychic sensation. Hereward Carrington, one of the few Scientific American Committee members who continued to support Marjorie, began publicizing a new medium, Egyptian Miracle Man, Raman Bey. The slender bearded mystic claimed to be able to control his body with his mind slowing one wrist pulse while increasing the other, thrusting steel needles through his flesh and resting with a sword blade under the back of his neck and another under his heels while a man holding a sledgehammer cracked a stone slab on his chest. While these stock tricks befuddled audiences, apparently the gullible, they were well known to magicians who had traveled the circuses or performed in dime museums. Raman Bay allowed himself to be enclosed in a metal box and spent an hour in the Dalton Hotel swimming pool in July. Houdini was challenged to replicate this magnificent feat, which he gladly accepted. He was placed in the Shelton Hotel pool after being sealed in a container of the same size. After an hour and a half, assistants removed the box from the water and opened it. The magician, who was tired but otherwise in good condition, told reporters that the stunt had nothing supernatural about it. He explained that the key was to stay calm, move as little as possible, and breathe in short, regular bursts of air. In September, Houdini's fall season began in Patterson, New Jersey. During this time, the show began to suffer from problems and mishaps, and the curtain would soon fall on the great magician for good. This should come as no surprise. He did several deadly stunts, and any of them could have gone wrong at any moment. But let's get to it. Bess became ill with potamine poisoning, more commonly known as food poisoning, in Providence, Rhode Island. Here, he immediately called a doctor and arranged for a nurse to accompany her to New York. He was less concerned with his own health. During Houdini's famous Chinese water torture cell escape on the night of October 11th, a chain slipped and fractured his ankle. A doctor in the audience suggested he stop the show and go to the hospital, but he refused. In fact, he completed the entire performance by hopping on one foot. He then went to Memorial Hospital in Albany for treatment and x-rays. He was ordered to be off his feet for at least one week, but he continued to perform. Two McGill University students had heard Houdini give a lecture the week before stopping by the magician's dressing room at the Princess Theater on the afternoon of October 22nd. J. Gordon Whitehead, a third student, came in and started talking to Houdini while one of the young men was drawing a portrait of him. Houdini was polite to the young men, but he was also preoccupied with his mail. When Whitehead asked if Houdini could withstand powerful blows to the stomach, he wasn't paying attention. He replied absently that he could as long as he had time to brace himself for the punch. The boy believed that Houdini had granted permission for such a display, leaned forward, and struck him four times in the abdomen with clenched fist. 
When Houdini looked surprised, the boy backed away quickly, explaining in a panic that he thought Houdini had given him permission to hit him. The artist and his friend mistook Whitehead for insane and grabbed the boy to pull him away. With a pained wave, Houdini stopped them. Whitehead was horrified to see the performer in such obvious pain, but the magician quickly recovered enough to reassure the young man that, and then stepped onto the stage for his performance. Houdini was seen wincing in pain throughout the evening, and late that night, he admitted to crippling pangs that worsened. When he returned to his hotel room, he couldn't sleep, and Bess massaged him to make him feel better, thinking he had a stomach cramp or a strained muscle. His performances over the next two days were hours of agony, interrupted only by brief intermissions when he fell into a restless sleep. He finally told his wife about what happened in the dressing room after his final Saturday show. It was too late by then to see a doctor. When they arrived, an assistant wired the show's advanced man in Detroit and told him to have a physician ready to see Houdini. The train was late, so Houdini went to the Garrick Theater instead of the Statler Hotel, where Dr. Leo Drudska was waiting in the lobby. When the doctor arrived at the theater, he found Houdini busy assisting his assistants with props for the evening performance. Because there was no cot in the dressing room for Dr. Drutska to examine Houdini, he stretched out onto the floor. He had acute appendicitis per the doctor's diagnosis. He had 102 degree fever but refused to go to the hospital for necessary emergency surgery. He was determined to be there because he was scheduled to perform a sold-out show that night. The theater manager had already informed him that the venue was sold out. They're here to see me, Houdini replied. I will not disappoint them. His fever had risen to 104 by the time he took the stage. He was tired, feverish, and plagued by abdominal pains in addition to the broken ankle from a few weeks ago. He did, however, manage to complete the entire show, despite the fact that his terrified assistants were constantly forced to perform some motion that Houdini couldn't. Observers reported that he frequently missed his cues and seemed to rush the show. He was taken to his dressing room between the first and second acts and ice packs were placed on him to try to cool his fever. This was also done between acts two and three. Toward the end of the evening, he began performing little magic with skills and coins, card slides, and accepting audience questions and challenges. He stayed on stage until the third act, when he turned to his chief assistant and said, Drop the curtain, Collins. I can't go any further. He literally collapsed where he had been standing when the curtain closed. Houdini was assisted back to his dressing room, where he changed his clothes but refused to return to the hospital. He returned to his hotel, still believing that his pain and illness would go away. The hotel physician was not summoned until early morning hours, when Bess threw a tantrum. In turn, he contacted a surgeon, and Houdini was rushed to the hospital against his will. An operation was immediately performed, but the surgeon agreed that he had little chance of survival. His appendix had ruptured, and despite the efforts of medical professionals, Bess was advised to contact family members. Despite his critical condition, Houdini managed to survive until the early afternoon of October 31st. In the dim light, he turned to Bess and his brother Theo, whom he affectionately referred to as Dash, and said quietly, Dash, I'm getting tired. I can't fight any longer. Houdini then stepped through the veil between this world and the next. I know you're probably as shocked as I was when I read this. See, I always heard that Harry Houdini died doing the Chinese water torture trick. Just to make sure I wasn't alone, I asked Sean, and he too, without any prompting from me, said that he always heard that Houdini had died during a performance of one of his tricks. I mean, I guess it's better to burn out than fade away, but the man literally died because he refused to go to the hospital. Sean seems to think this is how I will die too.
Many mysteries still surround Houdini's death, many of which have arisen as a result of the fact that there are at least seven different versions of how he died. He died in the arms of Bess in Boston and Chicago while hanging suspended upside down in a glass tank, while performing at the bottom of a river, while trapped in a locked casket, and others. What actually happened is as I described just moments ago, and Houdini died as a result of a ruptured appendix. The appendix, however, did not rupture when the young man punched him in the abdomen in his dressing room. This could have resulted in the rupture, but Houdini was most likely suffering from appendicitis prior to the incident. The infamous punch, on the other hand, is widely accepted as the legendary cause of death. In the days following his death, reports from clairvoyants claiming to have predicted Houdini's death and to have witnessed signs and omens of it began to come in. At 10.58 p.m. on October 24th, a photograph of Houdini that had been framed and hung on the wall fell to the ground, breaking the glass, according to Mr. Geisel. I now know Houdini will die, he allegedly said. Houdini's spiritualist adversaries had been predicting his death for years, so Geisel's prediction came as no surprise. They had to be correct sooner or later. Marjorie's spirit guide, Walter, had given him a year or less in 1924, and he was not alone. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and others in his home circle recorded an ominous message about the magician several months before his death, according to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Houdini is doomed, 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 read the message. On October 13th, a medium named Miss Wood wrote to novelist Fulton Ourseller, saying three years ago, the spirit of Dr. Hyslop said the, wa- the waters are black for Houdini and he foretold disaster would claim him while performing in a theater. Dr. Hyslop now claims that Houdini's injury is more serious than previously reported and that his days as a magician are over. According to some accounts, Houdini had foreknowledge of what was to happen. Among his clippings was one from 1919, which showed a comedian named Sidney Drew collapsing on stage in Detroit. The performer had fallen ill in St. Louis and had continued to play despite medical advice until he couldn't go any further in Detroit. Those who discovered this clipping among Houdini's belongings must have thought the comedian's death was eerily similar to Houdini's own. It's unclear why the magician would have saved it. Yeah, I find that a bit odd as well. Did Harry Houdini fake his own death? This is going to turn out uh, into one of those cases where people see him years later on a beach somewhere like Elvis and Hitler. After Houdini's death, his friend and fellow magician, Joseph Dunninger, told him an eerie story. He claimed that Houdini called him in New York early one morning in October of 1926 and asked him to come with his car to West 113th Street because he was in a hurry and needed to move some things. He asked Dunninger to drive through the park once the car was loaded. Dunninger claimed that as they approached the exit on Central Park, West near 72nd Street, Houdini grabbed his arm and urged him to return to his house. Dunninger, perplexed, inquired if he had forgotten anything. Don't ask questions, Joe, Houdini said. Just turn around and go back. Dunninger drove back to the house, and when they arrived, Houdini climbed out of the car and stood in the rain staring at the house. He stood there for a few minutes, water dripping down his face and soaking his clothes before getting back into the car and remained silent for some time. Dunninger drove away, and as the two men approached the park's western exit, he noticed Houdini's shoulders began to shake. He was sobbing. When his friend asked what was wrong, Houdini replied rather cryptically, I've seen my house for the last time, Joe. I'll never see my house again. As far as I know, Dunninger added later, he never did. Not long after Houdini's death, the famous Houdini seances began and continue to this day despite Houdini Estate's official sanction having ended years ago. 
While Bess intended to honor her husband's request about attempting contact with him after death, this may not have been the driving force behind her search for the secret code that he promised to send her from beyond the grave, if possible. Bess, like her husband after his mother's death, was at a loss for what to do with her life now that Houdini had died. They had been together since Bess was a young woman, and she had lived inside his closed world for decades, serving as his wife and assistant. In a very real sense, she had been his partner, and he always stated that Bess was his beloved wife and the only one who ever helped me in my work. Although their life had not been perfect, it had never been dull. And despite Houdini's enormous ego, he never concealed the fact that he relied entirely on her. Bess appeared to be drifting and empty without him. It's not surprising that she craved another conversation with him. But her life moved slowly. While she was not wealthy, Houdini had left her a trust fund and substantial amounts of life insurance. She had to pay large inheritance taxes, but she had enough to live comfortably for the rest of her life. She sold their West 113th Street home, relocated to Payson Avenue in another part of town, and became engulfed in alcohol and misery. She considered opening a tea room and touring with the Vaudeville Act, but neither of these ventures took off. She soon found herself wasting time attempting to contact her husband. She would lock herself in a room with his photograph every Sunday at the hour of his death and waiting for a sign. She spread the word that she was expecting a secret message from her husband, and word got out that Bess had offered $10,000 to any medium who could deliver a genuine message from Houdini. Almost every week, a new medium claimed to have cracked the code, but none did until 1928 when famed medium Arthur Ford announced that he had a message for Bess. He told her that the message had come from Houdini's mother and had only one word, forgive. Bess then made a startling announcement claiming that Ford's message was the first she had received that had any appearance of the truth. In November, Ford received another message, this time from Houdini himself. The medium relayed an entire coded message while in a trance. Rosabelle, answer, tell, pray, Answer. Look. Tell. Answer. Answer. Tell. Bess invited Ford to her home after receiving this information, and he asked her if the words were correct. She said they were, and Ford asked her to take off her wedding ring and explain what Rosabelle meant to everyone in the room. This was the word that authenticated the message, a secret known only to Bess and Harry. It was the title of a song that had been popular when they first met at Coney Island. The remainder of the message was a series of code words that spelled out believe. The code was one that the Houdinis had used during their mind reading act while touring with the circus in the early days. Why does this seem like another case of someone doing their research in order to scam people? Poor Bess. All she wanted was to feel some sense of closeness to her one true love again. This appeared to validate the message and to be the final clue that Houdini had promised to relay from the next world. But did Houdini ever communicate with the other side? Not surprisingly, Arthur Ford was soon accused of defrauding investors. Even though Bess claimed the message was correct, many claimed Ford obtained the code from a Houdini book published in 1927. The press, skeptics, and Houdini's friends refused to believe Ford had broken the code, so Bess withdrew her reward offer on their advice. So did he truly defy the impossible code? Arthur Ford certainly believed he had, going to his grave in 1974 convinced that he had received a message from Houdini. Ford was the pastor of Manhattan's first spiritualist church and a respected member of the psychic community and 
1928. He'd also made a name for himself by challenging magician Howard Thurston to a debate at Carnegie Hall, which he won. Thurston, who had been carrying on Houdini's tradition of exposing fraudulent mediums, was stimmed by his inability to explain some of Ford's efforts. After revealing the code, Ford's jealous colleagues turned on him and newspaper reporters and debunkers began to accuse him, along with Bess, of perpetrating a hoax despite both of their claims of innocence. Arthur Ford was expelled from the United Spiritualist League of New York shortly after, but was later reinstated on the grounds of insufficient insufficient evidence. But was he a liar? Many people believe so, claiming that he discovered the secret code on page 105 of a book published that previous year. The code, by the way, was not specially prepared by Houdini and Bess. Even though it had been around for years, it was very old and had been used in their act. Despite this, it should be noted that while Ford could have easily found the code somewhere, there has never been an adequate explanation other than a fraud perpetrated with Miss Houdini, which both parties denied, as to where he got the message that he gave to Bess. Could it have come from beyond the veil that separates our world from the next? Bess Houdini continued to hold seances in the hopes of communicating with her late husband, but she began to lose hope as the years passed. The final official Houdini seance took place on Halloween night, 1936, 10 years after Houdini's death. On the roof of the Knickerbocker Hotel in Hollywood, a group of friends, fellow magicians, occultists, scientists, and Bess Houdini herself gathered. The gathering was organized by Eddie Saint, a former carnival and vaudeville performer who also worked as a magician. He'd been recommended to Bess a few years ago in New York to act as her manager, but concerned friends had actually hired him to keep an eye on her and protect her from being taken advantage of. A genuine affection developed between them, and they eventually began sharing a bungalow in Hollywood, which Bess had enjoyed living in during her husband's brief film career. Radio provided coverage for the final Houdini seance, which was brought broadcast all over the world. Eddie Saint took command of the proceedings and began by playing Pomp and Circumstance, a tune that Houdini had used to begin his act in later years. Every facility that might aid in opening the pathway to the spirit world has been provided tonight, he said to radio listeners. A medium's trumpet, a pair of slates with chalk, a writing tablet and pencil, a small bell, a huge pair of silver handcuffs on a silk cushion rest in the inner circle. Saint continued coverage of the event, finally crying out to make contact with the late magician. Houdini, are you here? Are you here, Houdini? Please manifest yourself in any way possible. We have waited, Houdini, oh so long. Never have you been able to present the evidence you promised, and now, this, the night of nights, the world is listening. Harry, levitate the table. Move it. Lift the table. Move it or wrap it. Spell out a code. Harry, please. Ring a bell. Let its tinkle be heard around the world. Saint and the rest of Bess's inner circle tried for over an hour to contact the elusive magician before giving up. Miss Houdini, the zero hour has passed, Saint finally said to Bess. The ten years are up. Have you reached a decision? The mournful voice of Bess Houdini then echoed through radio receivers around the world. Yes, Houdini did not come through, she replied. My last hope is gone. I do not believe that Houdini can come back to me or to anyone. The Houdini shrine has burned for 10 years. I now 
reverently turn out the light. It is finished. Good night, Harry. The seance ended, but a tremendously violent thunderstorm broke out, drenching the seance participants and terrifying them with the horrific lightning and thunder. They would later discover that this mysterious storm had only occurred above the Knickerbocker Hotel and nowhere else in Hollywood. Some speculated that Houdini did, in fact, appear, as the flamboyant performer may have made his presence known through the spectacular effects of the thunderstorm. I would have believed that to be a sign, a freak thunderstorm that only happens above one building. Either the whole group was stretching the truth on that one, or it really was Houdini letting his wife know that he was still there. Lies or legends, who really knows? Houdini was and still is a mystery. On the one hand, he was an open-minded seeker of truth, but on the other, he was an outspoken denier of all things supernatural. If a man can be said to be gone but never forgotten, it should be said of Harry Houdini. He's truly an American enigma, much like spiritualism itself. Well, friends, it's that time again. I want to thank all of you for listening. And if you have enjoyed listening to this podcast, I ask you to please subscribe, like, or leave us a written review. We absolutely love hearing from all of you. We can be found on all major podcasting hosts, but if there's one that you prefer and we are not hosted on there, let us know at lorelegendlaundry at gmail.com and we will put it on there. We are officially on Facebook and Instagram. You can find us by typing in facebook.com forward slash lore legends laundry. Um, with Instagram, do the same. Instagram.com slash lore legends laundry. As these are the sites that we share pictures of our locations and interact with all of you throughout the week. Until next time. Bye guys. And don't forget to switch the laundry. 